We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Mike Mills and Nick Sforbes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you're quite welcome. You are quite welcome. I love having two people on at once. Some people get freaked out about that, but I figure then there's just double the amount of coolness and goodness to go around, right? So exactly, <laughs> y'all are co-founders of Infinitary Fund, and I was practicing that, and I'm I'm good. Nick, Nick says I got it right, so yeah, <laughs> no, my job right. is done. My job is done. That's the only thing I got to get right is the name, and then I'm all like, yeah, this is just going to be a cakewalk. You're an investment fund. You do some really cool stuff with a bunch of maths and things that probably people are going to be like, that's over my head, but. The reason why I wanted to have you all on was just because in the world of AI, machine learning, people trying to get a, you know ahead of the curve and really using technology to sort of enhance how they do their job, not a lot of venture capitalists, investment people use it wisely, as I have seen. And seeing how y'all are, I think, on the pretty much the cutting edge of this, I'm like, okay, we got to have y'all on. So before we talk about all of that and I geek out, because again, I'm a recovering engineer and I love that sort of stuff. We are going to start with Mike and I'm going to ask the question I always ask, right? I'm such a boring person, but this is the way it goes. Tell us how you got to do what you're doing today, Mike, and then we'll go to Nick. Yeah, thank you, Jari. So I guess we could consider the starting point would be my interest in economics and political science. Right around the time I exited high school, I for some, whatever reason, I became really infatuated with the field of economics in particular. What that basically translated to was me ending up studying economics and political science as a major in college at the University of Massachusetts. And I met Nick at around, I think it's like 2013, 2014, I think it was. I entered college in, 20, in 2013 and... Essentially, I just attempted to surround myself with people who 
had similar interests. And Nick happened to be one of those people, him and I, and had a lot of time together that we enjoyed talking about things like geopolitics in particular was very fun. We talked about philosophy, talked about mathematical and economic philosophy in particular, and how those could potentially be joined. And then as I grew further in my academic career, I realized that not only did I want to challenge myself academically, but I wanted to put those words into action. So, you know, I started to get the idea of, you know, maybe I want to become an entrepreneur someday. Now, it just so happened that Nick was working on an idea that eventually turned into our fund. And based off of our mutual friendship and shared interests, it just seemed like a, a natural marriage, so to speak, to, you know, start working together on what became Infinitary Fund. You know, we started working together in 2016, you know, putting the ideas together. You know, we were just starting out of our dorms, really. So a lot of it had was just learning from scratch. You know, what do we do? You know, do we need a lawyer? You know, where do we market? You know, how do we put this thing together? We really had no idea. Uh, so that was I'm scared to say that it was seven years ago now, but we've, we've learned a lot since then. And we're happy to say that, you know, we grew the fund into something that is not only sustainable, but you know, it's, it's producing results, I think, beyond what we expected at the time. Wow. Wow. Seven years. Wow. That's, seven it's years. eternity. It's like an eternity. And it's startup like years. It. It's like, I don't know, 35 years in startup years. So, so Nick, how about you? Oh yeah. So my name is Nick, Nick Spores. And, um, like Mike said, we met each other in college. <clears throat> I have an interest in math that's gone back all my life. I've always liked mathematics a lot. And in particular in college, I got really into mathematical logic and something called foundations of mathematics. I really liked the, the really deep level abstract mathematics, but I also found that I wanted to apply it in some way. And I wasn't incredibly I do enjoy chemistry and biology, but I wasn't looking to have a career in that field. And so I wanted to find a new application I was excited about. And so first I looked into an economics and then I was really excited about investing because as a way to apply some extremely abstract mathematics in a way that was, didn't have to be held back by other industry standards, so to speak, because it was really competitive and a free industry. So I really was very excited about that. <clears throat> so. During my mathematics training, I started on the side, starting, started to study economics, investing, some cultural studies, classes, machine learning, and so forth, so that I could start to get my mind wrapped around what investing was. And so right around the time that I was taking a, a data analytics class, that's when Mike and I met. And so I had been working for a couple of years on trying to figure out in college, what's the best what's the best way to do investing? And so after two and a half years, I finally kind of got my aha moment and, and realized like, this is a, a good idea and I wanted to test it and so forth. So I started taking my data analytics class and learned like how I could back test it and put it through some industrial grade tests to see if it was the real deal or not. And then that's when I met Mike. And like, like Mike said, we really have a lot, a lot of interest in common. Mike was actually the one that introduced me to something called Banach-Tarski paradox, which is something in, in mathematics that I've really found a lot of interest in now. I've continued to study. It's called the axiom of choice. And so we have a lot of similar interests there with kind of the crossroads between the really 
abstract economics with the applied mathematics. And so, you know, we were friends from 2013 and 2000 to, until 2016. So for three years, we were really just friends and talking. And I, I definitely heard in college that it's, you know, life isn't just about learning in the classroom. It's about building relationships outside of the classroom. And then, and I thought that that'd be a good, a good thing to do. And so I'm, I'm really, I've enjoyed, you know, seeing that become what it has. So now we're friends and we're also business partners. Wow. Like there's some heavy math stuff in there. I don't, <laughs> which is cool. Cause you know, it's funny. My stepdaughter, future stepdaughter, well, I call her my stepdaughter. You know, she graduated eighth grade and she actually has a STEM internship this, this, this summer. Cool. You know, they're going to build a plane, which oh, to wow. me, I am like over the moon. Cause I used to fly planes and of course, engineering. I'm just, I bought her all oh. these books on planes. Right. Um, but I used to help her in math all the time. And, you know, cause again, she just wasn't that interested in it. And so I had bought a book called all the mathematics you didn't take that you need for grad school. It's like, I, I'm sure you might've heard of it. It's like this green book. It's, I don't know. You no, know, it sounds good though. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I feel like just like prod her with it, even though she's like more artistic and everything. But what, what's funny about, you know, all the, all the math and everything, it, 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 again, it's the you know, it's the basics, fundamentals of physics and everything. I mean, like they prove all this stuff with mathematics, you know, take the physical world and try to like figure out how it works. And in engineering school, we always hated the math classes because it's like, oh, we just want to build stuff. Right. <laughs> but my favorite math class is where, you know, partial differential equations and sort of the applied mathematics because I was an engineer and I just wanted to crank out a computer program that would do whatever. Okay. You know, some MATLAB or something. Yeah, you know, remember MATLAB, right? But what's funny is, I don't. I, I mean, and this is what I'd love to explore and get you guys' thoughts on, because there's just fundamental laws of the world and fundamental like foundation of the world. As an example, the reason why we could do AI, machine learning, and do all of these this math stuff really fast because of semiconductors, and then of course, fundamentally how those work and everything. And this whole first principles idea is something I'm really fascinated with. And I'm curious if, if that's sort of how you approach this. You're like, okay, there's the mathematics, there's all these, but it sounds like it's like a first principles kind of thing, which is sort of foundational to the world. And, you know, I'm just curious, Mike, is that kind of how you thought of it? And then Nick, if you could, you know, follow on, it's just seems like a fascinating way to go. Yeah. I actually think Nick would probably be better answering this question than I would. He did come up with most of the math. I mean, for, are you uh, talking about, meaning? yeah. Well, for the first principles, are you talking like, uh, could you explain a little bit just what you mean? Like, you mean like kind of the, like the mathematical principles of it or something or what? Yeah. I mean, like in the physical world, there's just like fundamental principles of, you know, there's the law, oh, actions, laws, you know, and there's, or there's like things that have been proven over time. And, okay. you know, a lot of investors, the, the reason I bring this up is a lot of investors say, oh, we invest on first principles. And I'm like, well, I know what that means. That means, oh, growing market, great founder. Oh, A plus. I mean, doesn't take, I mean, I could do that, right? Yeah. Seems like well, you have taken the first principle and gone down another level and been like, oh no, the fundamental foundation of first principles is what we're talking about. That, that's yeah, the right thing we're saying. Yeah. I yeah. There are definitely, you know, two directions that we could go in. You know, you could get more sophisticated with your math, you know, a more, 
partial differential equations, or you can go, like you said, in the other direction, which is going to be the mathematical and then even the logical level beneath that. And so, that, yeah, you're right. That is exactly what we're interested in as far as the applications of some really abstract math that typically is seen more in just algebra and, and, and mathematical logic, which is the axiomatic choice. And so that this is kind of existing beneath the level of, of algorithms typically. So we're interested in researching pure mathematics in search of new applications because investing is such a competitive environment. What you really need is two things. You need something that's highly mathematical, but also very novel. And so what we're looking to do is to kind of step away from the algorithmic level and step away from even the machine learning level and try to kind of go like downstairs beneath that. And what we did is we created our own machine learning method, which is called the bridge method. And it comes from when I was in college, I was trying to figure out like, what does all of this foundations of mathematics stuff mean? I was also studying complexity theory. And so I was putting together this theory called abstract, not theory before I was getting into investing. And so once I discovered investing, I was like, how can I apply this abstract, not theory into, into investing? So from the theory, we were able to create our own machine learning method. And from the machine learning method, we can create our own algorithm. So it really was a long, it was a four-year process to do all of that. But I think in the end, it can end up being very, very re rewarding. That. And, and you mentioned something called the, was it the axiom of choice? Was that the, what you, what you used? Can, yeah. can you explain that a little bit more? I mean... I know what the words mean, sure. <laughs> no. but I don't yeah. know what they mean, right? So, you know, when we were in college, Mike introduced me to this paradox that involves geometry being able to break apart shapes and put them back together in a way that just seems kind of impossible. And so you see this being done and you're like, well, how could that be the case? And it really all kind of boils down to there's this fundamental principle in all of mathematics called the axiom of choice. And it's so deep that some people think it's actually just logic and not like math. Function of nature. And yeah, that it's kind of more of a function of nature. And, and what's interesting about it is that people use it without realizing it all the time in mathematics and like historically. And even currently, if, if a person isn't trained in the excellent choice, they'll find themselves accidentally doing it. And then also that it's lurking everywhere in math, that it's like there are some propositions in mathematics, which kind of imply a lot of other propositions, but it isn't always the case that it's a return direction. And so the fact that you find all these different propositions in mathematics, which look different, but they're, you find out, well, it's actually just the axiom of choice again, like the Lowenheim-Skolem downward theorem is actually just the axiom of choice, but it doesn't it doesn't really look like that. And it comes in so many different forms. So what, what's interesting to, to us about it is that it represents non-constructive mathematics. And it's, it's, the axiom of choice is essentially the connection between the finite and the infinite. And when you can connect those two, if you can, if, we're, if the axiom of choice is true, then it tells you about the nature of infinite numbers. So not just finite numbers like one, two, three, four, but what happens when you get to infinity and, and can count beyond. So it's a very 
large, I guess you could say the large axiom or proposition is very fundamental and important for all of, all of mathematics. And so um, I'm in particular researching it because of what I found that it has in connection with complex adaptive systems, because in knot theory, what we're doing is we're studying how things emerge out of nothing, essentially. That there's you know, different levels of emergence, weak and strong, but a, a lot of times what we're seeing in nature is uh, things kind of becoming out of a self-catalytic system. And so the, uh, the axiom of choice is connected to all of this in the way that, that it connects the finite with the infinite. So is it kind of like, you know, in physics, they have the unifying theory of everything. Is this that level of, of like, uh, it, it's not a theory of everything, but it's an attempt to the axiom of choice was discovered as an attempt to kind of help complete the theory of everything, but you can't actually complete it. Yeah. 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 I mean, then it wouldn't be part of it, I guess you yeah. could say. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's just interesting. It's just like a different way to think about things. Like, I I'm assuming, you know, all financial models that I've seen in all ways, things, it's basically a bunch of pattern matching and luck. I mean, you know, a lot of, lot of, lot of venture investing is luck, which they'll never tell you, but it is. What is it? Generates the right answer. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. So the the axiom of choice is essentially the principle of arbitrary choice. I, I forgot to define that. So if you want to know like what it is, it essentially says if you look at a list of of things that somehow, some way, you can make a selection from all of the, that list. It's called arbitrary choice, basically. Right. And so, yeah. Cool. And so, you know, now that you've got the foundation, right, and you know. How do you then go about building a fund? How do you go about like building your, you know, investment thesis and like, what's, what's the strategy? Cause a lot of, a lot of what people do in investing, right. Is like, oh, I'm only going to invest in SaaS or I'm only going to invest in this or that. Is, is there, how did, how did it all kind of come together so that now you're, you're investing and trying to figure out sort of in real time, proving, proving all this stuff out. So. Like you said, it was kind of layers originally starting with just kind of the universe of what's, what's investing, what are the different <clears throat> investment vehicles and, and strategies and so forth. I quickly realized I took an investing class, tried all the different techniques, quickly realized they don't work in a way that's going to produce just like some, wow, you know, so, and when it was when I met Mike that I started testing the idea of, of trying to when I, when I was able to combine my theory with the, the training I had on complex adaptive systems in college and turn it into an idea, um, when I was, when I met Mike and was talking to him, he was kind of one to help me turn it from a, a strategy into a product because you got to have a product people want to buy, not just, not just a system, you know, and then from there, it was really, you know, how do we turn it from a product into a business? How do we, how do we build the organization? And Mike has just been an absolutely incredible with that. He's, he's really got the know-how with meeting people and following up with things, just the overall organizational, you know, the million different micro tasks that he has to do it and juggle as well along the way. So you'd say that, I mean, you guys complement each other pretty well. 
I would, I would think that's yeah probably one of the most important things for a co-founder. The yeah shared shared mission, but then complementary skill set. And and so, Mike, yeah, when you hear all this crazy math, <laughs> I mean, you're into it, so you're like, oh, yeah, I could build that into a product, not a prop. Let's go. <laughs> How'd that feel? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've always, I've always enjoyed my conversations with Nick. Like they, they always felt like I was. I always felt like I was walking away from the conversation with something that I learned, something new, and not only just like a piece of information, but something that I could really chew on. You know, I always went to Nick with, even if I had like math homework I needed help with, he was always really good at conceptualizing things in a way that was you know, I'm more of a visual learner, for instance, and he was really good at, you know, explaining things in a way that could fit, you know, the style, which someone was, would needed to, you know, learn it in. But when I hear, it's taken a long time for me to understand on a deeper level, you know, some of the more abstract nature of, of what we, we've been working on. And at some level, I accept that this is just a side of the business that I'm not going to know like 100% on just because, you know, Nick has had years of experience and training in this at this point, and I, and I have not. So a lot of it has been just a game of, you know, what do I need to know? How do I communicate this in a way where I can communicate it to a large quantity of people at BB? You know, being able to communicate it without Nick, essentially. And then also recognizing, you know, when it's appropriate to... When it's necessary, I should say, to bring Nick into the conversation. I like to refer to Nick as the big guns. You know, if I need to go really technical and deep, you know, I know I can rely on him to to help me with that if we have a prospect that is particularly interested in, in that aspect of, of the of the investment thesis. So ultimately I feel again, like every conversation, I take things away, but I also sometimes, you know. I, there's just times where I just don't understand and that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Like how's the sausage is made, so to speak. I mean, yeah. it, it must, I mean, it must be hard to convince people in one sense. I mean, I think the nice thing about doing this in the financial markets is you can just show them the numbers. Like this is it. Like this is the proof, right? You think mm -hmm. so. Yeah. But you know, people, well, yeah, you would. Right. But you know, I mean, I, I have this problem with things that are not even as complex as this, or at least, you know, foundationally as complex as this. I remember I was building a antenna on a chip, on a semiconductor chip for RFID applications. And I was like, no, this will never work. And I'm all, well, the math works, the physics works. And I remember <laughs> having to convince people through, you know, and they still didn't get it because it was just too over their head or they were just too not interested in like learning. So I am curious, Mike, how, how, do, how do you, because there's a there's a fine line between dumbing it down, which I don't like the term, but I mean like dumbing it down, and then like people are going to be interested in what it really means. So, how do you handle that tension? How do you you know? Because there's a lot of a lot of technology companies, SaaS companies, startups have this problem. Yeah, and they all are bad at it to a first order, and I can say that because I've been part of it, and I've been part of the problem. Is <laughs> like technical person, right? So. Curious, how, how do you how do you mitigate that? How do you start to talk about it? Yeah, so I think it really boils down to only like a handful of problems that 
really mitigate this is that one, you have to know your target audience. People only typically invest in things that they like, know, or care about. So, you know, I've met people who, you know, are, are, I don't want to speak to our returns because it's not appropriate in the context of the regulations, but we've met people who were happy to sacrifice returns if it meant something they know, you know, something they're comfortable with. They didn't care to explore something new. So I think it really, to that, it's important to go after people that are already, I mean, this is just a basic, you know, business 101 type thing, you know, go after the audience that is actually looking for your product. And that was difficult in the beginning, but I think at this point, you know, we've, we've expanded our network over the years enough to know precisely the type of people who, you know, we know precisely who to target. We know when a conversation is going to be a waste of time. Like I can usually tell if I start talking about what we do and there's certain levels I'll take people through in a sense, I'll give them a general overview of what I do. And if they ask a second question, I have additional dialogue responses that I, I know what to say in return to help answer their questions. And then if they keep going, usually at a certain point, they usually don't get more than two or three levels of deep in terms of like asking why and how, because um, most people just aren't interested. But if they are, then again, that's usually when I bring Nick in, I say, well, you know, or I say, or it might be something that we just can't talk about because there are proprietary, there's a proprietary nature to what we do. So yeah, knowing your audience and then also just having the wisdom to discern when a conversation, you know, it doesn't really matter how many times you're going to answer someone's questions. Sometimes they just, they're never going to like what you do. That's, that's happened a lot too. You know, we've, we've talked to people who they may have been a good fit on paper, but they, for lack of a better phrase, I mean, again, this isn't like a bad thing necessarily, but they just don't care enough to consider the possibility of what we do because what we do is so novel and unusual in the finance industry most people are like well, what's your sharp ratio well how do you reposition and that's you know there's certain things we've had people that they all they care about is the sharp ratio and it's just kind of that's just a conversation enter right there because you know our differential advantage is, is what we do precisely and why we do it you know it has nothing to do with the the uh, implicit statistics that come out of that in a sense. Said so I would say that again, noting the audience and again, having the wisdom to end the conversation or direct it in a certain way when you know it's going in a certain direction. I've had the same conversation so many times at this point, or it's, I've had many conversations, uh, take place, you know, repeatedly. It's just different people over time. So eventually it just becomes, you know, a pattern in a sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually a really hard skill to master, you know, like knowing how to read the room and being like, yeah, yeah. this isn't going to go well or yeah, within this first five minutes. Yeah, they're not a fit, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Especially when come out. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, I've had people come out of the gate and I start telling them what we do and they're just like, well, you can't do that. And I'm like, well, then you lack imagination <laughs> or I don't know. And it's a little harsh, but I, I guess that's... Well, I think it's true. I mean, no, yeah. I mean, because, you know, pattern matching is a huge thing that humans, I mean, most, most fund managers are human. Most venture capitalists are human. Uh, they all think that they know what they're doing. They all think they're all skilled in the art. 
you look at the numbers, they don't lie. Yeah, on average, it's a good investment thing, but there's a wide swing. You know, some lose money, some make a ton. I mean, oh, yeah. It's all in either the art and craft and science of it or getting lucky. I mean, I don't know the answer to it. I mean, I know several investors, you know, farm managers, et cetera, especially in the startup world. And the ones that seem to be successful sort of have this model and this thesis in their head. They don't tend to deviate from it very much. No. So when something new and novel comes around, it's a cognitive dissonance to be like, oh, maybe I'm wrong. You know, I don't think they don't want to say that, or maybe I need to think about it in a different way. And the reason why I like kind of what you guys are doing and the take you have is that often entrepreneurs need to think different and they need to overcome the bias in the market. And I've had so many companies where we built the technology looking to solve a problem and never went anywhere. And so it's hard, just full stop. It's hard to create your own category. It's hard to create your own thing. You do your own thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's admirable. And I think it's the only way things move forward. Like someone has to take the risk that this wacky idea may or may not work. And we have to think it will. <laughs> so, you know, in terms of success and getting people to, you know, invest or however your business model is, how has that been? I mean, been doing this for what? Since what, 2017, 2018? Is that, that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So officially we launched in 2019. A lot of the work that we were doing together prior to that was really just trying to navigate what was essentially one of the most heavily regulated industries in the country. It's not like you can just go out and start an LLC and just start investment advising. It's, it's a little more complicated than that, and a little more costly than that. However, I would say the biggest issue, the, the most common thing that I see when people come to invest with us, when they decide to invest with us, is that we have communicated what we do to the appropriate audience and it, maybe it wasn't a right away thing. We didn't say yes right away, but they know of us. They know we're there. And then so later down the line, once they were ready, they knew who to call up for their needs for the kind of investing that they wanted to get into. So that's been a lot of what we've experienced is, you know, planting the seeds with our network and then, and then I guess reaping their fruit later down the line, I guess you could say. It was never, it's, it's a very patient process. But I would say the biggest hurdle we've experienced is how to communicate our message. Because in a sense, and Nick, you can speak to this a little bit more, a lot of what we, a lot of what we do, and we don't communicate this necessarily, well, I don't communicate this really when I talk to people, but it is, I think, in a sense, fundamentally true. A lot of what we do with our particular fund and the research is predicated on the idea that all the other solutions out there are not efficient enough to get to where we want to go. And so when you talk to people who've been in the industry for decades and you, and you start from that basis, you know, a lot of times they get really either offended or they just don't believe you out of the gate. So I think it's a lot of it's been fine tuning the message, you know, creating the story. Again, people don't usually invest in things that they don't, you know, like or believe in. You know, you can look at the, at the S&P 500, there are dozens of stocks on there presume, you know, they don't, a lot of them don't make money. Those companies don't make money and yet people continue to invest in them. Why? Because they believe in those companies. <laughs> so again, it's a lot of it has been navigating 
you know, the messaging in a sense, you know, getting that feedback of what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes what works for some people may not work for other people. You have to, again, you have to know, discern early on in the conversation, you know, what angle am I going with this? You know, what does this person care about? How can I cater my message to the kinds of things that they're interested in? So. Yeah. Anything to add on that, Nick? I mean, it must be uh, sometimes frustrating to be like, well, you don't get it. <laughs> How can you not yeah. get it? But I have found that it is true that you know, problems bring, bring progress. And so we go through these different levels of talking to people and they're like, well, I don't understand what that means. And it's forced me to go back to the drawing board. And so I think it's kind of helped us to filter things out. It's been a challenge, but I like challenges. So what I've found, I think the best way to communicate what we're doing is that we're a mathematical investing aggressive growth fund. So um, we're interested in, in searching pure math for new applications in mathematics, applications somebody else has found. Our objective is aggressive growth. So we're looking for aggressive growth over the long term. And the inefficiency that we found out there is that everybody's kind of doing everything backwards. We found a way instead of looking at the long-term past to predict the short-term future, where we flipped it on its head, we're analyzing the short-term past to, to analyze the long-term future. And so what we found is that kind of like the quantum level in the world, when you can go down smaller and smaller in the data, there's a lot of noise, right? There's a lot of noise that can create false positives and slippery slopes that aren't good and so forth. But what we've found is a proprietary way to optimize the entropy of our variables and enthalpy so that we can build a bridge between small perturbations in the price now uh, versus large growth later on. So the inefficiency basically is that everybody's overcrowding around machine learning, machine learning algorithms that are public. And we've gone back to the drawing board and created our own from scratch. That's totally our own. And it's not just about modeling the emergence from quantum level data to large scale patterns, but it's also the process that Mike and I are implementing where we're we're evolving ourselves over time because I'm going to keep studying the most advanced mathematics I can. And we're eventually going to be hiring a hundred mathematicians to replicate the think tank where Einstein and Gödel used to work, the IAS, when it used to be all about math. So we're going to be going really, really deep with this stuff and be laser focused on it in a way that's quite new in the world because we found this cool feedback between math and investing that they don't just dovetail together. They, they, they multiply each other. And so what I really see our differential advantage being is that we're so dedicated to evolving ourselves and doing something new. Like I said, we're not trying to just use the, the overcrowded techniques. We're trying to do something totally different. And so I, I really see the, the math and the investing as what our, our cutting edge is, if that, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's the ultimate laboratory, I think. Yeah. You can point to 
it was this, it's now that. Well, something works. And you're like, well, explain it to me. Like, okay, well, I don't understand it, but it works. You know, like, do they really understand artificial intelligence models as best they can? Not so much. There's probably some people, like maybe a handful of people in the world, but it's funny that, that you mentioned, you know, that Einstein and the labs that came out with, you know, all those, that great foundational things, like the stuff that they were working on, what, 60, 70 years ago is the foundation of what we have today. I think that's true. Yeah. John von Neumann and, yeah, and all the, yeah. Yeah. Shannon, Shannon's, all the Shannon oh, stuff, information, I mean, yeah. information theory, like wouldn't have computers, wouldn't have wireless communication without Shannon, like just full stop. Like he figured it out and everyone's like, oh, that's kind of neat. Oh, it worked. Oh shit. <laughs> like, that was like, like a large kind of like fantasy back then. Yeah. Oh no. Like <laughs> literal Star Trek fantasy. Like what the heck? Like how could this work? I mean, even Tesla and all those folks. So yeah, what I think we miss, and, and this is why this is so important. And again, while I'm always fascinated by this, we miss that the fundamental general research, deep dive, understanding of the world builds what we have today. Like the sh to, to the short term, like, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, all that stuff. You know, they were looking at that in the 50s and 60s. Then it finally got to the point where semiconductors and math and all that sort of stuff could actually do some of these things. It's what? That's 70, 80 years. Like, yeah. What do we got to work on now for the future or what should have we been working on <laughs> over the last, you know, instead of scaling SaaS startups? Yeah, what we do, you know? We're, we're really into hypercomputing. I know that yeah. it doesn't have a lot of hype yet, but that is part of our, uh, you know, infinitary mathematics is, is part of that, that whole domain. So we're, we're really interested. I don't know if you've heard about I have it. Okay. So computers are built on the principle of a Turing machine. And if you could go, if you could calculate something beyond the Turing machine, that's called hypercomputing. And one particular way to do that is if you could calculate infinitely many calculations per second. Now that sounds like um, a little bit too fantastic because according to modern set theory and mathematics, if you could do that, it'd be the end all. You could calculate every set theoretic formula because there's a countable model due to the Lohenheim downward theorem I mentioned. You could calculate every formula that exists, it'd be the end of all computing, there'd be nothing left to compute. But I think that the axiom of choice isn't completely true that there's that we might have gone too far because when's the last time we've been perfect as human beings as our, you know, we the science is full of uncertainty. And so I think that Gerda was right, there's incompleteness, but there's also this this principle of inexactness. And so I really believe that there are infinities that you cannot reduce to a countable model, which means that. A computer that could calculate instantly make calculations per second wouldn't be the end all of computing. It'd be a whole new frontier. And so if the axiom of choice is a little bit false, not completely true, um, then something called a Zeus machine. A Zeus machine is a hypercomputer that can do infinitely many calculations a second. Yeah. If the axiom of choice isn't completely true, then a Zeus machine is a whole new frontier. And it's not that far away with you know, with AI going the way it is, with yeah. quantum computing going the way it is. Yeah. Last year, the first processor that was just one, either one atom or one molecule, I can't remember. They've gotten it all the way down there. Yeah. So it's, I just see this as um, an eventual thing. 
know we're not hearing much about hypercomputing now, but not yet. I mean, yeah, we're definitely excited about. I'm well, uh, that's the thing that's so fascinating is how fast things accelerate. You know, I mean, I'm, yeah. semicon- I'm a semiconductor engineer, right? So I understand semiconductor physics, Moore's law is like my okay. bread and butter's Moore's law, right? And every time we'd be in the fab and be like next generation, 0.35 micron, 0.25 micron, 0.18 micron, all the process guys are going to be gone. This is, this is, there's, it's going to break one day. We're just not yeah. going to have a job. And we're like, okay. And just kept on going. Right. And I think it's interesting is that the, it's, I don't think humans, most humans, have enough imagination to understand that the, how the boundary just keeps moving. So let's say we get to this, the, the infinite computing. Okay, well, it, I'm doubtful that there, that's the edge. Like, we're not just going to fall off the edge into nothingness. It's like, there's something else. There always is something else. It's just, you yeah. can't figure it out, right? I mean, yep. I have this problem with people all the time when it comes to like any kind of thing that's outside their comfort zone, you know, could there be parallel universe? Well, sure. Could there be infinite parallel? Of, of course, could there be, you know, quantum entanglement where I could move an atom here and on the other side of the universe instantaneously, like, you know, like, yeah, you know, yeah. mathematics, but no one, you can't, you know, people are, people are, people can't realize we evolved from, you know, amoebas. They're like, well, how could that happen? Well, <laughs> let me explain, you know, like, Takes time. Yeah. Well, and lots and, of steps. And well, and you're just like limited in your spirit. Like the yeah. thought experiment and the intellectual honesty of saying, I don't know, but I'm pushing towards this mm-hmm. is something seriously like lacking. One and two, it's like that's where the innovation happens. I mean, who would have thought? Who would have thought? Like not even two years ago, like not even two, not even six months ago, what ChatGPT could do. I mean, people are just yeah. like blown away. You're like, well, that had to happen over time there's a you know and 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 like the limit is the limit for now and and for whatever reason i don't understand why i mean maybe because you know engineering background or whatever but we always push the limit because the limits i personally believe the limits oh the limits aren't to infinity so yeah there's infinity and then there's the infinite limit to me and because just yeah why wouldn't it like things are connected and moved around like i it's again it, it's Bends people's brains. <laughs> uh-huh. Like, no, it's this. We, we, you know, and you're like, no, man, it's what's out of there is, you know, anyway. So I, I yeah. love, I just love this stuff. Yeah. I think partially has to do with the fact that people are just finite creatures. And it's really difficult to, it's even, it's even difficult to conceptualize history in a sense, like in our brains, you know, what is, what does 10 years mean? What does a hundred years mean? Like a thousand years can't even, there's a certain point where your brain can't even really tangibly grasp, you know, certain numbers that, you know, they're not that high in principle, but, you know, in terms of the amount of time that we live, you know, a couple thousand years, I can't imagine what that is. You know, that's a lot of time. A lot of stuff goes on in that time. Oh, yeah. Period. I mean, look at, there's people, 25%, 30% of Americans think the earth is flat because they can't they, fathom. Right? Yeah. No, they can't fathom that it could be round because they like, how can it? How can I be walking on a round surface? And you're kind of like, oh my god! <laughs> like yeah. this is what we have to deal with. But again, you know, it's like I just yeah, but it's baby steps. Yeah, I think it's going, baby steps. Yeah, 
Yeah. And if I may, just going back to you know what we were saying, the point you made about science, and like, when I add to that, in that, you know, science is not usually these big breakthroughs like happening all the time. It's usually these small incremental changes that over time build up to have an exponential effect. I mean, you're an engineer. I, so, I mean, I, I used to work at an engineering company myself when I was in high school. So I know just like a little bit about this, but the guys I used to work with, they were excited. It was a biomedical company. They were excited if they could get the screw that they were like working on for like six months to like fit just like a little bit better, like, a ha like half a millimeter, like less material than what they typically use. But again, over time, you know, those one percent changes, you know, you hear of, you know, how do you you hear those motivational things like how do you improve yourself mm -hmm. uh, over time? If you can make a one percent improvement like each day, you know, what does the rest of the year look like? It's a yeah. tremendously uh, it's different exponent, outcome. Right? Yeah, it's an point, exponent. Point oh, you know, point oh one, you know, the point oh one exponent as opposed to point nine nine exponent. Like yeah. Or even another way to imagine it, it's just like the exercise they used to teach us in high school or re I can't remember if it's high school or middle school, but it's like if you could have a million dollars now or like have a penny on the first day and just keep doubling it like every day <clears> after that over the course of the month, you have like millions of dollars at the end of it. It's because of the power of an exponential effect. All the money in the world. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah, the whole, that whole chess paradox too, infinite, that many, you know, if I won how many grains of rice or whatever. All grains of it in right. the entire planet. Every yeah. molecule on the world. Which which is funny because people don't understand that either. It's like, how could that be? Well, we're counting math. Like math is just math. Like, you know, 10 to the 355 millionth is, okay, everything on the you know, universe. <laughs> it's like, okay, yeah. whatever, right? Anyway. And our brains can't comprehend that. Yeah. There's just no, there's just no like framework for it. Again, our, our time frames are so short compared to... Yeah. You know what we're usually dealing with in terms of that's yeah, i found that a lot in my research that you know there in, in history in the history history of math there's this constant disturbance of you know should we extend what we know about the finite to be true about the infinite that's because all we have to work with is the finite but it, it's it's really interesting that that connection between the two yeah yeah and i also think doing the thought experiments for all entrepreneurs so powerful, even in the mundane, absolute mundane, like talking about marketing. How are we going to tell our message? How, you know, the, the, the process of the thought experiment is, it, my entire career has been the differentiating factor in figuring out a problem. Because to your point, it's like, let's, no, let's just separate out. Let's, let's go outside the sphere we're in right now. And let's just assume, let's just have some fun. Let's think about these magic. And then you're like, oh shit. It connects that way. Okay, let's go. And boom, it works. So, guys, <laughs> brainstorming. Yeah, <laughs> brainstorming. Yeah, but I just, I really appreciate it, man. I know we geeked out a lot. I learned a lot about math, <laughs> which I love. Yeah, I good luck it. to you Going guys. Yeah, good, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good. I know. Good luck to both of you. This is really cool. I can't wait to follow all of it and see how how it turns out. But uh, yeah, good luck, man. This is cool stuff. It's, yeah, it's thanks out for being there. a part of Nerney with us. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, that. Appreciate that. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com 
to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur, and frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA, and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better.